You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Social media platforms make money when eyeballs stay on their platforms longer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Helen Lee Buig of the Reboot Foundation. We're going to be discussing social media's effect with the misinformation ecosystem and how users can best fight fake news. All right, Joe, uh, before we dig into our stories this week, we got uh, a kind note from a listener whose Mm -hmm. name is Jonathan. He wrote in with an interesting question. He writes, he says, I've been experimenting with two-factor authentication devices and standards. While I've used time-based one-time passwords for years, I'm looking into using a universal second-factor YubiKey for improved security. Good idea. So far, so good, right? that sounds great. He says, last week, I saw this story from Gizmodo encouraging everyone to use device-based two-factor authentication rather than OTP codes. That's one-time password codes. Mm -hmm. Um, OTP codes you type in are still vulnerable to phishing on a carefully crafted site. Yes, they are. While with UTF, the site you're authenticating with establishes communication with the two-factor authentication device directly, which can't be spoofed like typing in a six-digit code. Yes. However... Many sites require a mobile phone number or more likely a one-time OTP when you first enable two-factor authentication. When you can add universal two-factor, often this is in addition to SMS or OTP. How does that make U2F more secure than OTP? Aren't you just adding another means of authentication? This seems less secure because you have more ways to authenticate. If I have SMS-based authentication and add OTP, that isn't really more secure than SMS unless SMS is disabled. What do you think? Thanks for your great show. Well, what do you think, Joe? I agree. Jonathan makes a great point here. I think I said this a couple of episodes ago that the security of your account is only as strong as the weakest link in the security chain, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if I can say I've lost my universal two-factor device, my UTF, my YubiKey, And the website goes, well, that's okay. We'll just send you a text message. If that's their workflow, it becomes a lot easier for me to get around that security implement of the universal two-factor device, which so far we haven't found any vulnerabilities in that protocol. But if I can get around that, and let's say I've SIM swapped the target's phone and get you to send me, the attacker, a one-time password via SMS, then I'm in. That's it. This is a good observation from Jonathan. It's making your potential attack surface larger, as he notes. Uh And also, uh, I guess it is a case of you're you're only as good as your weakest link. That's right. Yeah. So if you can, disable those. If you get yourself a, a hardware key, make sure that you've gone through and disabled the other ones. Right. Usually the way they protect your account in the event that you lose your hardware token is they'll give you a list of one-time passwords you can use that you can print out and you can keep in a safe somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's a fairly secure way of doing things, assuming you can can secure that piece of paper. Yeah, just tack it up to the front door of your house. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks to uh, Jonathan for sending in that note. Uh, It's a good question. Of course, we would love to hear from you. You can send us your questions or your catch of the days to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump in with some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? 
Dave, I'm going way back to 2015 here. Mm. That is when a woman in Scotland named Patricia Riley worked at a company called People's Media Group. Mm. She worked there as a debt collector, presumably in their accounts receivable department. One day, her managing director, Yvonne Bremner, went on vacation. And on the day that Ms. Bremner went on vacation, Ms. Riley received emails from someone posing as Ms. Bremner. Hmm. Right now, Miss Bremner is the managing director of this organization, mm-hmm. People's Media. The email asked for a transfer of twenty four thousand eight hundred pounds to be made to another company, hmm. and Miss Riley worked with her direct supervisor, her line manager, who made the online payment in the requested amount. Okay. Three days later, she receives another email that uh, seems to be from Miss Bremner, which asked for another transfer of seventy five thousand two hundred pounds. Hmm. Uh, Ms. Bremner's still out of the office, but so is Ms. Riley's line manager. So in the end, Ms. Riley goes ahead and makes these payments. Hmm. And she winds up sending 193,250 pounds to these scammers. Wow. So what happens next? Ms. Riley is fired, and then People's Media Group sues her. Hmm. Right? And they want to get back 107,000 pounds from the employee, and they say that she's liable. And there's a write-up of this case from the BBC in 2019. And in this write-up, Ms. Bremner, frankly, has some nasty things to say about Ms. Riley. Hmm. Uh, she says that Riley is the office gossip and that she underperforms in her role as a collector and that Ms. Riley was not authorized to make payments on behalf of the company, but she did, in fact, have access to the banking system. Well, whose fault is that? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Dave. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> that was that was one of the things I'm saying as I'm reading this. I'm going, wait a minute. Okay. If she shouldn't have been able to make payments, if she was not authorized, why does she have access to the to the banking All right. system? All right, go on, go on. People's Publishing lost that case. Oh, okay. And last week they lost their appeal of that first decision. Now we're in 2021. We're six years beyond this event. And the case is, I think, now resolved. I don't know if they can appeal again. And I'm I'm not familiar with the UK's legal system. The judge in the appeals case had some important things to say. And one of the things he said is, it's rare for an employer to sue a junior employee for negligence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what Ms. Riley was, a junior employee. They should have had some insurance for this kind of event. He said, if this becomes a regular event, it, quote, will have a significant impact on the employment relationship. So he doesn't want this to become precedent is what he's saying. Oh, okay. Right? Because I I, I don't want every employer turning around and suing every employee for losses. Right. Right? That would be a problem. Mm -hmm. The judge said that Ms. Riley genuinely thought she was being instructed to make payments by her managing director Mm -hmm. and that she was neither trained nor experienced in the payment of creditors. So the workflow, though it seemed off, it would not have seemed off to Ms. Riley because she was not trained for this or hadn't done it in the past. I see. And she did not suspect that what was truly going on, and she could not reasonably have been expected to do so. Mm. She didn't know she was being scammed and had no reasonable recourse. Now, this whole case is interesting because it sets a, uh, I don't know how legal precedent works in in the UK, but it's interesting that this company sued this woman for something that happened six years ago. The case has been going on for a long time, but the judges said, no, no, this is not happening. We're not doing this. Hmm. So I think this is a lesson to companies out there. Yeah, I wonder, uh, you know, what if she had received training, right? Type of training we talk about here all the time, you know, to to alert your employees. Would the company have had a better case had she been trained, but even despite her training, then went ahead and and sent the money? I don't know. I don't know. I think the key 
problem with this case is that she should not have been authorized to access the banking system, but she was able to do so. Right. Uh, that sounds like a, like an authorization problem. That's the second A in the AAA, the authentication, authorization, and auditing. That's mm-hmm. a fundamental part of security. It sounds like a failure of the authorization part of their process here. Yeah, and it's uh, most companies that I'm aware of, if you have to write a check more than a certain amount, a lot of times that requires two signatures. It does, yeah. Uh, just for for these reasons. Exactly. You get a second set of eyes on it and and as we always say, slow down. Slow down. Slow that's down. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's an ending that I'm okay with. Right, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I don't think she's to blame here. And she shouldn't have been authorized to make those payments. Certainly yeah. not those those sorts of amounts. One thing to have, uh, you know, Access to the petty cash drawer or something. But when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. Oof. Wow. That's right. All right. Well, interesting story for sure. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story this week uh, comes from uh, SC Magazine, uh, written by Bradley Barth. And the title of the article is Bizarre Backdoor Fishing Campaign Issues Links and Files to Avoid Raising Red Flags. Hmm. This is interesting. Uh, it's based off of some... Uh, research that the folks over at CoFence published. They're a security company. And, you know, we always talk about how you should never click on the links. Right. And what's happening here, what the folks at CoFence are tracking is that the bad guys know that we are not clicking on the links the way we used to. And so they're taking things to another level. There's some phishing emails. Uh, There's one that they um, spotted back in February And it was an order confirmation message from a fake pharmaceutical company. Uh, And they're saying that there have been other communications pretending to be from office supply companies, from flower deliveries, and even lingerie companies. Mm. Uh, (laughs) So what happens is you get an email that talks about how your order was canceled or something like that. But instead of having a link for you to click on, there's a phone number. Really? Yeah. And it says, please call this number to resolve this issue. And so you call the number and there's a friendly customer service rep there waiting to answer the phone. I see. And from that point, that's where they get you. That's where they try to convince you to go to a website that is uh, a malicious website. And on that website, that is where the malware will be installed. Very clever. Um, And off you go. Right. And how do they get the malware installed? Do they use uh, vulnerability in a browser or do they actually convince, at that point in time, convince the person to download and install something? It seems like it's a combination of, of those things depending okay. on, on how things go. They, I think initially they just try to take you to a website that just does everything on its own. But if they can't do that, for example, uh, it talks about how they'll they'll talk you through downloading an Excel file, for example, and right. disabling the protections within Excel itself to keep you from running macros and yep. those sorts of things. And, you know, do it in a very convincing way. This article points out that, as always, you know, never call a number you receive in an email. Never follow the email link, right? Go right. go straight to the vendor's website yourself. Yeah, this is the problem with email, though, isn't it? Mm. Uh, email, and I've said this before, I'll say it again because I like repeating myself. Um, <laughs> email is the only service out there on the internet that I can think of, you know, that, that we all have mm-hmm. that anybody can just put something in our inbox, yeah. Right. We don't know who that person is. We we have no clue of who that person is behind the email unless we go through the forensic activity of looking at the email headers and seeing what happened, how the email actually arrived to us. And most people can't go through that and understand what they're looking at because you really have to have an understanding of the email protocols 
to get a handle on it. Email's terrible. We need another solution. (laughs) (laughs) It is amazing that we haven't come up with one. Because there have been attempts over the years to graft things onto email to make it better. And none of them have reached enough universal acceptance to really make them stick. Yeah, there are verification techniques you can use to make sure that an email is coming from the server that it claims to be coming from. Yeah. But if you don't enact those verifications, then you can still run a simple SMTP server. Right. What's interesting to me about this is that you know, these bad guys are investing in a call center. Right. They're <laughs> right. investing in infrastructure. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we've had stories before about how some of these call centers, like in India, are, are actually kind of pull double duty, right? They have mm-hmm. they have their own legitimate business practices. Right. But every now and then they'll they'll take on one of these illegitimate business practices to fill time. They don't really vet their vendors or or they don't really care. They're complicit in it. Mm-hmm. And they get high commissions on these things. Yeah. Because it's pretty much all profit. Yeah. A call comes in and they've got a script. All right. Well we will have a, a link to that story in the show notes as well. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Wyatt. And he says, hello, Dave and Joe. Hacking Humans is one of my favorite shows. Hey, that's great. Thank, it's one of my favorite shows much. too. <laughs> uh, I love all you guys do at the CyberWire. I have two catches of the day for you. You can do them both or pick your favorite. We're going to actually do both of them. We're going to do one this week and one next week. So the first one is a phishing email he received, and he couldn't resist playing with whoever sent it. Since they verified their story by linking to a CNN article, I decided to Google random Wyatts who had won lotteries so that he could verify my story. (laughs) I even went so far as to temporarily change the name of my Google account to match this Wyatt who had won a a lottery. So Wyatt here is actually getting into his own social engineering practice here. (laughs) But these folks uh, or these scammers sent him an email claiming to come from Jason and Barbara Wood who have a Japanese email address. It ends in .jp, which hmm. which is uh, Japan, the hmm. top-level domain for Japan. Interesting. So, Dave, why don't you read the uh, email from the scammers? All right. It goes like this. My wife and I won the Mega Millions jackpot for $410 million U.S. million on June 9th, 2020, and we, we voluntarily decided to donate the amount of $10 million U.S. million for charity. We're trying to reach uh, random people from various sources and fashions to touch life from various angles. Therefore, you get the message here. You've been registered as one of the lucky recipients to receive two million U.S. dollars. This donation is given to you, allowing you to take care of your personal problems and in large part to generously helping us reach out to give to the less fortunate orphans and charitable organizations in your neighborhood locality. To verify, here's a link to a CNN story. Get back to me on how to receive the donation. Thank you, Jason and Barbara Wood. Wyatt responded to this email. He says, this is a very kind gesture, and I'm so happy that you're trying to give some of your money to charity. To be honest, however, I don't really need the money. In 2007, I too won the lottery. Yep, I won the Louisiana lottery for $1 million and received $469,000 after taxes. I decided to use that money to quit my job at the phone company and start my own bulldozer rental company. (laughs) But on November 8th, 2010, I decided to take $1,000 out of my savings and buy exactly 4,000 Bitcoin. Hmm. It was really a freak accident, but when I saw that these Bitcoins hit 25 cents a coin, I decided it would be perfect time to buy an even amount of them. I'm very OCD. 
Since then, I have bought and sold various cryptocurrencies, and I am now at the point where I am even richer than you are. The $2 million doesn't interest me. I think it's wonderful that you are looking to spend money on charity. And when you find a good one, let me know so that I can match your donation. Thank you very much for what you are doing. <laughs> so that's a good response, Wyatt. I, yeah. I'd be interested to hear if they ever wrote back to him. Well, chewing up some of their time, which, yes. <laughs> which is good. Uh, but also, I mean, you know, it's good It's good natured. And, yes. and I like it. It's it's it's, a, it's the spirit of fun. We'll so. have another one from Wyatt next week. <laughs> All well. right. Terrific. Well, thank you, Wyatt, for sending that in. Again, uh, if you have a, a catch of the day for us, you can send it to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Helen Lee Buig. She's from an organization called the Reboot Foundation. And our conversation centered on social media's effect within the misinformation ecosystem and how folks can best fight fake news. Here's my conversation with Helen Lee Buig. Social media platforms make money when eyeballs stay on their platforms longer. So their algorithm and the way that they function visually is configured in order to prey on people's emotions so that people stay online longer. And that is fundamentally one of the problems that is linked to why we have so much poor news judgment, because obviously when people are being emotional, it's hard for people to think rationally. Now, when you say poor news judgment, what do you mean by that? Based on the uh, Reboot Foundation studies, we have done research that shows that when people stay on social media longer, their ability to identify fake news or misinformation increases incrementally and exponentially. So that's what I mean by poor news judgment. We sort of half joke about how a lot of us throughout the pandemic are doing doom scrolling, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and finding ourselves, uh, you know, you blink your eyes and you spend an hour going through Twitter or TikTok or any of the other platforms. And they really do suck you in. And that's exactly the point about how they prey on people's emotions to suck us in and actually stay online. In addition to sort of the visual attractiveness of people to stay online, again, When we talk about configuration of algorithm, these social media platforms deliberately will look at what you've clicked on, what you've liked, and what you've scrolled through previously and try to show you more and more articles or opinions that are in line with what you previously looked at. So in other words, these platforms are deliberately helping you do selective thinking and hence creating truly an echo chamber. Is it even to the point where, for example, if I'm scrolling through something, in, like Twitter, you know, I'm scrolling through a Twitter feed and I pause on something to read it, is, is the fact that I've stopped scrolling, that I've paused there, is that registered as me showing interest? Perhaps not the time period, but more the click-throughs of the types of articles. So obviously, if you have... To, um, subscribe to and are clicking through more pro-Trump articles or tweets, then what's going to naturally show up on your Twitter, even if you subscribe to pro-Biden sites, you're more likely going to be shown 
more pro-Trump types of articles and eventually clickbaits. Now, I, I suppose one of the, the other major issues here is that these algorithms are opaque. I mean, we, we really don't have any real view inside what they're doing. You're absolutely right. And today, there is a lot of discussion around Section 230, which is really the law that protects the social media platforms from potential litigation liability for disseminating misinformation. However, in reality, the real challenges that we have is not just about the fact that they might be spreading misinformation by showing information. The real challenge is the fact that there is very little to no transparency as to why we're seeing what we're seeing on social media. And we, even though most people actually believe that they're quite good at identifying fake news, based on one of the surveys that the Reboot Foundation did, less than 1% of the population actually applies true fact-checking techniques when they're reviewing articles. Can you give us a little bit of the background on the Reboot Foundation itself and the, the mission of the organization? So the Reboot Foundation, we started in 2018, and the original goal was really to try to elevate critical thinking both in schools, in the families, as well as in the workplace. And the origin of this very narrow focus on critical thinking really came from a personal story where I noticed that my daughter, who's now 10, so back then she was seven years old, predominantly gathers information online and not offline. In other words, we, we just talked about social media, but it's not just social media, even information gathering via Google or other information searches, we're actually all subject to algorithms, again, that purview what sites you've been to before. And so there's a bit of selective thinking going on, even in terms of our information gathering methods. And so with that, that was really the genesis of the Reboot Foundation. And how do you go about achieving your goals? What sort of resources are you making available? So at the Reboot Foundation, we publish different articles and studies, and we fund different researchers that study both ways of improving critical thinking, but also more recently around fake news and the dissemination of misinformation. Now, you may say, David, what's the link between critical thinking and fake news and misinformation? Well, our subjectivity to fake news is a bit of a consequence of the fact that we're not doing as much critical thinking. So there is a direct link. But in addition to um, research and studies that we publish, we've actually created two different types of guides as well. One is a guide for parents and how to engage in critical thinking education for your children. And we've divided that up into different age groups because obviously a parent might not feel as comfortable addressing critical thinking subjects with a 16-year-old as one would with a 6-year-old. And we've more recently also published a teacher's guide working with teachers across the country for different school subject matters of how to better integrate critical thinking in their school curriculum. 
You know, I, I remember as a middle schooler having a, a really inspiring science teacher who was really deliberate about instilling us with, with a sense of the importance of critical thinking skills. And it's something we spent time on. And then, you know, as I got older, uh, I remember um, uh, Carl Sagan's, you know, baloney detection kit and, uh, <laughs> and reading um, The Demon Haunted World, which was a, another, you know, a book that really focuses on a lot of these skills. And um, I, I guess where I'm going with this is that I, as a teenager, you know, growing up in the, the 80s, um, I would have hoped we would have been farther along than, than we are. Uh, it's frustrating to me that in some ways it feels as though, I suppose, thanks to social media and some of the other things like, like fake news, it feels as though perhaps we're slipping when it comes to these things. There's two things. One is you were lucky enough that you had this science teacher when we were when you were in middle school. Mm. Unfortunately, one of our research reports demonstrates that basically over a third of middle school students in the US say that they've rarely or never learned how to judge the reliability of sources. And over 50% of teachers that we've interviewed say that they don't actually methodically, systematically teach critical thinking in their curriculum. Now, I'm not saying that's, you know, necessarily the fault of teachers because obviously our education system today is so much bombarded with test-based teaching. And so, you know, there's a lot of material that they have to go through. But the fact of the matter is our schools today are not doing enough teaching critical thinking skills, let alone media literacy skills both of which are critical to really arm our children when they are gathering information, especially via social media, just as much as adults today are gathering over 90% of their news information via social media platforms. And you can imagine, David, if these children are not developing these skills in school and they're subject to TikTok, which in the beginning might just look like a small gimmick, you know, learning a few dance moves or some cutesy videos. But in reality, our children are actually gathering information from sources like TikTok where they don't necessarily have the tools to be able to challenge when some misinformation might be distributed to them. So for those of us who are trying to, to fight the good fight here and, and want to uh, help our, our friends, our family, our loved ones, and better equip them with these sorts of skills, what do you recommend? What are some of the things we can be doing? I think one thing that we all should do is take some time from of doing digital detox. You know, something that you mentioned earlier, David, about uh, automatically scrolling, you know, especially during this COVID period, hours and hours on Twitter and different forums. It's good to just take a breather. It can be complete digital detox or consciously saying, I'm only going to gather information via deliberately going on websites of news sources rather than doing click-throughs via the social media. So that's one dimension. Hmm. The second is pure awareness Reminding ourselves, just like we need to do the same education for children and media literacy, is to take a pause, see who the author is, what are the sources of what we're reading. And thirdly, one of the critical things I think that we need to do to pull away from ourselves from these echo chambers is to deliberately, conscientiously 
try to review and understand and reach out to those with an opposing view. Part of the challenges that we have really with the social media is not just misinformation or disinformation. It's the fact that we become so tunnel visioned because we're only seeing information from those who think like us, whether or not it's facts or not. I think it's a fascinating idea. I mean, the, you know, people get so dug in uh, these days, especially with the, the degree of polarization that we have. I wonder if exposing people to critical thinking skills can kind of be a way to soften those defenses to because you're not coming directly at their beliefs, but you're just saying, hey, look, here's a set of tools for evaluating uh, the things in your life. And hopefully that'll help them get to better ways of uh, establishing what's so and what's not. I'm a fundamental believer that people want to be good consumers of information Hmm. and Again, we're not aided, right? Because everything is about instant gratification. What we're being exposed to is basically similar thinking. It really requires a special effort to deliberately reach out and seek opposing views. One of the surveys that the Reboot Foundation did was a question around how often people actually seek out opposing views. Well, the irony was one in four people will deliberately avoid people who have opposing views. Now, this is before COVID, so this is when people (laughs) can actually communicate. But, but, you know, so we just need to be conscientious of that because I think a lot of it has to do with awareness, and I completely agree with you, David. If we deliberately make that effort to try to consider opposing views, not only do you actually reinforce your own argumentation. And so you could even reinforce uh, your own convictions by reviewing opposing views. But hopefully we can try to somewhat limit some of the polarization that we're seeing in today's society. Joe, what do you think? Bam. (laughs) <laughs> Helen has hit this hit, hit one out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Social media makes its money by keeping your eyes on the page, and these apps are designed to keep you engaged, and they use your emotions to do it. There are even some people who have said that Facebook is des- and Twitter are designed to be addictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. These are people who have left the company and said, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. Uh, you, know, you can think of Facebook and Twitter as the modern-day tobacco companies almost. Mm. I took a look at the research Helen is referencing here at the start of the interview. And there's a couple of interesting things that it says. Number one, the more people use social media, the worse their judgment. And this relationship held true even after excluding power users. So people who spend more than 10 hours a week on social media are excluded. And if you spend less than that among that group of people, mm-hmm. the more time you spend, the worse your discernment is. Hmm. There's a lot of research on the organization's website. You should check it out. Hmm. I would like to point out something about the transparency problem with these algorithms. We spent a, a good bit of time talking about the algorithms and how we're presenting with these things. These are uh, machine learning algorithms. One of the big problems in machine learning is explainability. In other words, if you put a gun to the head of these social media companies and said, explain why this story shows up on my page, they would not be able to answer you. Hmm. They don't know how. It, and that's kind of the big secret. The, the, the secret is not what the algorithm is. Right, the the algorithm is probably some kind of neural network or some other well known machine language algorithm. Yeah. The secret is they don't know why you're seeing these things. Mm. What's happening is they've given the algorithm the goal of keeping you engaged, 
and keeping you on the site. And the algorithm, with cold, methodical precision and complexity beyond human understanding, is doing its job. Mm -hmm. That's the problem or one of the problems here. There's lots of problems, <laughs> but I think that's a key takeaway that everybody should have. When she starts talking about education, it seems like a lot of modern education is based on regurgitation. We spend a lot of time teaching to tests, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's not good for anybody. It doesn't avail the student of critical thinking skills. That is almost something that has to be taught at home nowadays. And, and her website has a list of tools on it so you can help talk to your kids about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. The lack of opposing viewpoints is a huge problem in social media. Right, the it, bubbles. The bubbles. These algorithms are designed to keep you engaged, like I was just talking about. And that means that you don't get the opposing viewpoints because that tends to make you go, ah, I don't want to hear about this and, and walk <laughs> right, away. Right. Let me walk away and think about that for Right, a exactly. No, no, don't walk away. <laughs> keep listening to the same thing over and over again. Right, right, right. Digital detox. I talk about this. I have uninstalled all of the social media apps for my phone with the exception of Facebook Messenger, which I use to communicate with family members. I cannot sit on my phone anymore and scroll through Twitter, as you put it, doom scrolling, you know. Yeah, right. I, I just can't do that. Yeah. And, you know, every now and then I go, I would like to be on Twitter right now, but I'm like, nope, I'm not putting it back on my phone. I'm just mm -hmm. not doing it. Mm -hmm. Or Facebook. Or anything. Yeah. It's just not there. And finally, I have to say this again. I've been saying this for uh, years now. Uh, one, do not get your news from social media. Nobody should get their news from social media. If you see a news article on social media, just ignore it. <laughs> Don't even pay attention to it. Right. Go right. to a, a trusted news source. Get your news from a trusted news source. Make sure that you have a news source that sometimes has an opinion page that's different from your opinion, right? And read their article. Look at All Sides Media. They do a pretty good job of uh, showing you everything about a single story, that, that you know, how different news organizations are reporting it. That's a yeah. great website. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say this again. Social media is not a valid platform for political discussion. It is a valid platform for division and for insults. <laughs> it is not conducive to political discussion. You cannot have a constructive political discussion on social media. It cannot be done. Okay. You know what happens, you know, Joe, what happens when you deal in absolutes? Right. You yeah. become a Sith Lord. So. <laughs> <laughs> Angry old man yells at the microphone. <laughs> you know, just this past week, uh, I was uh, scrolling through Twitter and it struck me. A story came by and it was a horrible, heartbreaking story about something terrible that had happened. Right. But it was in Brazil. And it was a, it was a, sort of, it was a small town story about a tragedy that took place. And it's, I, I thought to myself, I don't want to see this. Like, right. It's, okay, I you know I, this is a terrible story. It makes me sad, but in no way, shape, or form does this affect my life. I can't do anything about it. Right? It's far away. It, it involves no one I know, no one I will ever meet. It's half a world away from me. All seeing this story does is put me in a bad mood. Yeah, I wish I could tell Twitter, hey, knock it off. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to see these things. And I suppose it's just a, a slippery slope or a, or a tricky thing because you, I, that's how you build your bubble, right? Right. That, yeah. Yep. So, well, though, if you don't want to see those stories anymore, when you see that story come up, close Twitter. Now let's not get carried away. <laughs> <laughs> the algorithm will go, oh, I showed that story to Dave and he didn't yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Well, again, our thanks to Helen Lee Buig from the Reboot Foundation for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. 
That is our show. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.